And then, from the field of the future, a new king will come to save the world of the past. Welcome, everybody, to nwczradio.com, Channel 1's Down the Rabbit Hole. My name is Big D. And I'm Brandon. And once again, it's awesome to have everybody along for this week's episode. want to thank all of our outlets who carry the program. You know who they are. We'll put their links in the show notes, especially FringeRadioNetwork.com. They've, they've been with us for a long time. And nwczradio.com, everybody who carries us, we thank them. And you can email us at downtherh at protonmail.com. Now, that being said, I know this last midweek was a heavy podcast. Uh, (laughs) uh, It was even heavy for me. It it was a difficult subject, but it was something that we needed to talk about. And so today we're going to lighten things up quite a bit. Yes. This is, I don't think it's any secret, this is one of my favorite times of history or historical fiction to read about what we're going to talk about today is king arthur and whether king arthur was real or not yeah and a lot of people line up on both sides of the fence there's absolutist and there are people who are no wayist that's <laughs> how i put it yes because it's one and it's one of those things that becomes really hard because there's no real, I mean, honest, like concrete proof that he existed, but there's really no concrete proof that he didn't. Right. And <laughs> there's also the theories, and we'll get into these as we progress into the episode, theories that Arthur wasn't actual real as Arthur, but he was made up from other people, or there was a person who was kind of like him, and then they attributed more and sort of made this this mythical figure. And so we're going to get into all of that because I love history. I know you love history, Brandon. And this is one of those things that we've been taught or we've read about or we watched movies about. And I think a lot of people just take it for granted that it's either fiction or there are those who are like, no, I I always grew up believing that that was a real thing. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things um, I mentioned to my wife that this is what we were doing. She's like, oh, yeah. 
And I made a comment that like, oh yeah, you know, there's, I mean, there's a chance that he never even existed. And she's like, what do you mean he never existed? <laughs> I'm like, that's what a lot of people think. And she's like, well, I mean, he's history. He's part of history. And I'm like, I mean, really, he's kind of not. But I mean, he is, but he isn't. And it becomes one of those weird that we love, these puzzles and rabbit holes of, well, was he real or wasn't he? Well, he's actually not part of history per se. So if you go back to a history book or you took history in high school or college, like world history, whether you're doing it in England or Wales or Scotland or the United States or whatever, King Arthur's not mentioned. Neither are the Knights of the Round Table or Merlin or the Excalibur or Guinevere or any of these things. If you go into literary history, that's where you'll find it. Yes. But I mean, and that's the hard part up until the 16th century, though. I mean, if you read anything and you know me, we love to read. So I end up reading books that are, you know, old and you read any older books up until the 16th century. It was a foregone conclusion that Arthur was real. Yes. It was taught that way to, I'll say, the less educated population of the time. Yeah. That's how it was presented to them. Yes. So I thought we'd start off with what you and I, you can tell your side, I'll tell my side, what you remember learning about or what you know about King Arthur as far as pop culture or reading or through movies. Like, like what's your interpretation of King Arthur, Knights of the Round Table, the whole Sword in the Stone and Guinevere and all of that? What, what's your recollection of early knowledge of this that rabbits have big sharp teeth <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> i knew I mean, that was going to come up at some point yeah it had to but i mean it's one of those for me it's i mean in all reality I, it was up until i was a little bit older it, it was it was sword in the stone the movie sword in the stone and then the holy grail monty python that was it you know, and then as we got older, I mean, I saw later shows where there was what in 2000, I think the early 2000s there was a really horrible movie called Excalibur. Um, there's been a couple other King Arthur, you know, there was one just recently that was another one that was really bad. Um, but I mean, they've done a couple, I've seen a few movies, but it was just kind of this thing of he was this great king that was basically a king because don't know why he was a king, but he became a king because he pulled the sword out of a stone and suddenly that made him king. Right. Or, you know, that some, you know, watery tart threw a sword at him. <laughs> well, I read a lot when I was a kid and I loved fantasy. Not, not so much like Dungeons and Dragons type fantasy, but I, I enjoyed this period. So I, I read a lot about uh, the Saxons, and I read a lot about Robin Hood and just medieval type, mm -hmm. I'll say fiction. And so, of course, King Arthur came up a lot in there. And then I, I can't even remember the name of the book, but it was a, a, a book for teenagers, you know, like young adult readers. And it was about the Knights of the Round Table primarily, but it was also brought in Merlin and... And then I read Lord Tennyson when I got into college, and Tennyson talked about Guinevere and this sort of love triangle. 
and and there's a lot of that love triangle that you get i mean we got you know which i didn't realize i mean which i will talk about more later like a lot of the stuff that we know about arthur wasn't part of the mythology until years like centuries later yeah a lot later because that's what i say and i think whether arthur was real or not a lot of things that got tacked on added on to the mythology of him were brought in much much later to in my opinion sort of flesh out the story it didn't seem after a while it didn't seem I think as mystical and magical enough. And so they had to broaden the story. Well, and there was a lot of things that I read too, where they talked about where, um, and I mean, nothing against either any country or whatever, but when the French writers started adding to the mythology, that's when we started getting the love stories. That's when you started getting Lancelot and Guinevere and that whole you know, there was a great story that I read while we were going through this. It's uh, what the Knight in the Cart, which is about Lancelot, and is an, a great story. I mean, if you ever get a chance, definitely read Knight in the Cart. It's it's quite an interesting one. Um, but that's where a lot of that was from the French writers, kind of th- started throwing in the love stories. You know, the original stories that we got was from you know what Nenny, which we're gonna totally butcher this name, Ninius, Gildas, you know. And those were really the first ones that really mentioned anything about Arthur. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll get into that in a moment. I wanted to also say that another way that I, me personally, learned about a lot of this was through music. There's a lot of songs growing up, especially in what used to be called art rock or progressive rock, mm-hmm. where they reference the sword and the stone, the Excalibur, Guinevere, Lancelot, Arthur to a certain degree. And if you read Tolkien at all, outside of his main works, Tolkien referred to all this stuff as well, sort of in a a mythological kind of way, an allegorical way. But he did bring up Arthur and the round table quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, he did. And and that was kind of one of those things, I mean, Tolkien did. um, There's a few other writers did, but I mean, they'd also... I mean, one of the other ways that I also kind of knew of King Arthur and knew a little bit about him was you always thought he was this very good, very religious, very strong, very, you know, unsinful, like sinless man. You know, when you heard about like the the greatness of JFK and Camelot. Right. Was it was Camelot how that that was when everything was good and the world was going to be great because of Camelot. And it just seems like it was this time when everything was at its best. Yeah, and the whole idea of the round table was that there was no leader. They were all equals. Therefore, there was no head of the table. And so that was chivalrous. It was a lot of kind of what we talked about with the Knights Templar. Mm -hmm. They had a code. And some people do believe that some of what the Knights Templar did got infused into the story of the round table nights. And I can see that easily. Um, definitely them getting turned into a lot of things that they did being turned into the King Arthur story because there's so much of what I really thought of King Arthur that actually fits better to who the King, the Knights Templar were. So I guess the question is, before we really get into the nuts and bolts of this, did you grow up thinking or believing that King Arthur and the 
the Knights of the Round Table and some of the, I'll just say, supporting cast, did you believe that they were real? Was that your assumption yes. that this was real? My assumption was they were just a part of British history. See, and that's interesting because I was the opposite. I just assumed they were all fantasy from the beginning. Yeah. See, it, I always thought it was, you know, the, the, my belief, at least the way I understood it when I was younger, was they were all real but a lot of the stories had um, like some mythological additions to it, if that makes sense. Yeah, they were and embellished. Course, they were embellished. They were embellished, yes. Yeah. They were embellished for, just like Hollywood does with anything, embellished for story's sake. So I always kind of felt like, yeah, he was a real character, but then, you know, they made it, made him cooler. There's dragons. There, there's a wizard that turns people into, you know, different animals. Right. There was you talk about bad movies. There was a really terrible movie called Merlin, I don't know, years ago, and it was really, really bad. Oh, I think I remember that one. So the reality is is that through well, centuries now, historians have debated this and they've never been able to come up with a definitive confirmation that Arthur existed, but they really can't come up with any kind of a definitive notion that he didn't either because yeah. Arthur does appear in some quasi historical documents. Now we're going to get into the fact that they've all been you know quite heavily refuted, but that doesn't that doesn't take away from the fact that they are there. And see that's the thing, a lot of those get heavy heavily refuted, but not the whole thing. There's certain parts of them that are like, okay, yes, the dragons underneath the that the, the, that lived in the pond underneath where they were trying to build the palace, that's probably a little bit mythological, but the rest of it fit. Some of these people really did exist. And also, so this uh, Ninius, or it, so it's spelled N-E-N-N-I-U-S. He's a Welsh historian. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to say his name. So we're going to go with Ninius. Yeah, like I said, I've heard it as Ninius, Ninius, and a couple others, so... But then, yeah, then the other one was Gildas. So, yes. So, Gildas wrote of a real life battle at uh, Baden Hills around 500 mm -hmm. AD. Then, Arthur appears, according to several articles that I read and according to history.com, that Arthur appears for the first time in the writings of Ninius, who gave a list of 12 battles that the warrior king supposedly fought. All of this was drawn from Welsh poetry. The problem is, and this is where a lot of historians start questioning this initial listing of Arthur, is that the battles took place in so many different times and places that it would have been impossible for one man to have participated in all of them. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't exist. It just means that this historian placed him in all these, and, and I'm guessing, let's just say Arthur is real, and he was at a few of those battles, and he did gallant things right he was yes. amazing well as we know with the scots and with the welsh they they love a good tale they love a good rhyme they they love to tell stories i wouldn't put it past them to infuse arthur into some of these other battles just to sort of grow the legend as they say yeah, and the one thing that's interesting is both uh, Nennius, Gildas, um, and later on we'll probably talk about Geoffrey of uh, uh, Monmouth, um, all of them somehow, like, 
basically say that they got most of this or they got some of this from other sources, but those other sources have never been found. So a lot of people think it's a lot of oral history, that this was oral history. There were stories, you know, and a lot of people wonder where, okay, if Arthur was at, you know, this battle that Nenia says he was and Gildas mentions, but doesn't mention Arthur, why didn't he mention Arthur? And then, of course, there's, you know, it could be that Arthur was canceled. Gildas didn't like him for some reason, so just left his name out. Could be that it, it was just so common that everybody knew Arthur was there. Why even write it down? You know, there's a couple of things that they've said. Well, it could be a multiple things or that he wasn't there. Right. Well, and according to uh, some other articles I read, the fame of Arthur spread beyond Wales and the uh, Celtic world particularly after the Norman conquest of 1066, which connected England to Northern France. And that's where we get Geoffrey of Monmouth. Yes. In uh, the 12th century, he wrote a book called the history of the Kings of Britain. And you said you read that or listened to a book on tapes. I did. I listened to a book on tape. I had, I had a six hour drive today. So, um, while I was driving, I listened to it. Um, because there's one that I that kept getting mentioned, and I was able to find it on tape, so I could listen to it. It's interesting, but I mean, it, it pictures, it paints a picture of Arthur that none of us, none of us have ever seen. It's not the Arthur that we all remember. This Arthur is a downright, like, basically warlord king, which is not the Arthur we know. No, I mean, in one of the stories, they talk about him being at, like, a battle, and I think they say he kills, like, 920 people by himself. Which I find impossible. Yes. So, I mean, he, in this story, I mean, in, in Jeffrey Monmouth, he is a full-on warlord. Like, but, I mean, he's still the king of Britain, but he's trying to, you know, take it back. And in the process of trying to take it back, I mean, he is a full-on just beast when he fights. According to several other articles I read about this Jeffrey Monmouth, he claims that all of this was supposedly based on a lost Celtic manuscript that yes. only he was able to examine. So nobody else has been able to verify that. He never produced proof. So this reminds me of, in a way, the Dan Brown Da Vinci Code, because if you read the opening statement of Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, he claims that these it's based on whatever manuscripts or, or secrets that only he has yep. kind of access to, which is part of the sort of the mystique of the book. Yeah. Which I mean, in all reality, it's a marketing ploy because, Oh my gosh, these are secrets that nobody else knows, you know? And it was one of those things. Jeffrey Monmouth knew it all the way back then. These are secrets that, because right now, I mean, people say that that book from Jeffrey Monmouth, there's still like 200 copies Yes. Original copies of that book I, I, out there. There And there's a guy who Which runs the Arthurian Society or something, and he has most of them. Yeah. And, and it's like unheard of to have from, I mean, and these are from 1100, you know, whatever AD to have that many copies of that a book from that time is unheard of. Well, it's because it was the second most popular book in the reading world at that time, other than the Bible. Yeah. So that's some clout for that time. Mm -hmm. That's a very popular book. <laughs> it's a very popular book. Uh, and then later there was a series of romances by the French poet Chrétien de Troyes. According to people who have read this, I have not read them, but according to 
those who have. They say basically this Chrétien gave Arthur's quest spiritual motive by introducing his search for the mysterious Holy Grail. And it could, because up to that point, there was no mention of them out there looking for the Holy Grail. And that brings in Monty Python right there. <laughs> yeah. Which, I mean, there is a whole thing. I mean, there's a whole story about them going, but the whole thing that's interesting um, is the idea of him going after the Grail. In most of that story, he's not part of it. No, it was the Knights. Yeah. It was Galahad and Lancelot and a couple of other ones. But that's one of the big things um, that I, I see a lot um, in these is once we start getting the more stories towards from the originals and then start getting the later ones, Arthur's less and less part of the story. It's about his knights in Guinevere. So there's also this guy named Jeffrey Ash, who's a historian. And he wrote The Discovery of King Arthur. And here's what he wrote. In the high king called Ryothasmus, we have at last a documented person as the starting point of the legend. He's the only such person on record who does anything Arthurian, or to put it more precisely, he's the only one to whom any large part of the story can be related. So according to him, he doesn't believe King Arthur actually lived, but that Arthur and this, this Ryothasmus were one and the same, and that they took this actual person, this king, Ryothasmus, and then gave him the name Arthur, and then attributed all this stuff to Arthur in mythology. Yeah. I mean, I read through this article. It seems to me like there's not a whole lot that is similar, but enough to where I guess he... He claims that a lot of the things that this king, uh, Ryothismus, did sort of coincided with the time periods that Arthur was supposed to be roaming around. Yeah. And there's a bunch of them. That's one thing that I found. There was, there was like four or five um, that pretty much were the ones that most people like, the, the most common ones that people are like, this is who he really was. Um that I kept running across. Um, there was, oh, Aurelius. There was a few. There was a, there was a few um, that he, they kept saying, oh, it's this is who he is, or it's a mixture of these four or five people. They're all kind of put together. Because in some stories against the Saxons, some stories they're against the, uh, the Romans. Yeah, in 1799, historian Sharon Turner stated this in her uh, book, History of the Anglo-Saxons. Either this Ryothasmus with Arthur, or it was from his expeditions that Geoffrey or the Breton bards took the idea of Arthur's battles in Gaul. And that was sort of the catalyst for this guy to start off on this idea. Now, you go down into this uh, article about this, and a lot of people are weighing in from from Gla University of Glasgow, from England, from University of Minnesota, and they're all saying, mm, not so fast. But it did start a conversation. Yeah. Well, it's kind of one of those things, like I was mentioning, the, the multiple people, because it's one thing, you know, we mentioned Gildas earlier. Uh, Gildas, or Gildas, 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 I've, seen, I've heard it multiple ways, um, that he actually, because in his, he mentions the battle 
but he attributes that battle battle to Ambrosius Aurelianus and winning a bunch of battles. And a lot of people think that that is King Arthur became King Arthur. And then later that turns into other, you know, um, according to, you know, Nennius pops up and then he says Arthur won multiple battles, which included the Baden Hill, which Gildas attributed to Ambrosius Aurelianus. As a scholar, Megan L. Morris, and Megan says, 19th century historians, authors, and artists were fascinated by the revival and reinvention of the heroic male body as a vehicle for historical consciousness. This fascination frequently drew upon legends of Arthur's survival and eventual return to save England. Well, and the thing that's interesting is that whole thing of him saving, you know, didn't pop up till later, like you said. I mean, it's a later theme. It wasn't in Gildas, Ninius, Jeffrey of Monmouth, none of them mention him coming back. According to uh, research by a British academic, they claim that the legendary British figure of the 5th and 6th century did exist, but was a general rather than a monarch, and that this monarch, or this general rather, fought all his battles in southern Scotland and Northumberland, and lived most of his life in Strathclyde. Dr. Andrew Breeze, a professional philologist and Celtist from the University of Navarre in Spain, based his findings on a Latin chronicle called The History of the Britons, written in the ninth century by the, this Welsh monk Ninius. The list, the names of nine places where Arthur defeated the enemies until now, nobody has been able to say exactly where they were. He claims to have found them. He found the places? Well, this That's is what That's one of the says. biggest things. That a lot of people say they don't exist. Right. So he says that most of them took place in the Dubglass, the River Douglas near, near Lenark, or putting the city of Legion at the east end of the Antonine Wall, and not at Chester or York, as others have done. He says that instead of Arthurian battles occurring up and down Britain, as others, as others have claimed, there's a concentration in southern Scotland and the borders. Hmm. He said the, an ancient battle in Baden, likely to be in Wiltshire, part of the West Country, traditionally associated with the king, was not to do with Arthur at all. Basically, he says they're looking in the wrong place. He also says he will have been a Briton of southern Scotland fighting all his battles there, but he was not fighting the English. His enemies were other British peoples around Edinburgh and Carlisle. He was not, of course, a king. He will have been a brave general who soon became a legend. It's often thought that Arthur was of Roman descent and died fighting invaders from the Angles or Saxon tribes. Dr. Bree says that the pattern of the battle names on the map accompanying his research proves that Arthur was a North Briton who was a chieftain or general in the early 6th century. And that's what a lot of things, people think it is the 6th century, that it was around 540, 530, right in there. Um, I know the one, what you're talking about, is when I'd read the same one, and they actually named him as Magnus Maximus. Yes, I was getting, yeah, I was getting to that. I beat you to it. But I thought this was interesting, too. So this Dr. Bree says, The evidence means all the textbooks will have to be changed. We can forget about Arthur holding back the Anglo-Saxon invaders at Baden in, uh, in the year 500. We can also forget about him as a Roman cavalry leader moving his forces up and down Britain. 
What we have instead is a Romanized Britain of the North, apparently operating out of Strathclyde, fighting over North Britons in the 530s, and being killed at Camlin in 537, according to the Welsh annals. Hmm. This is all according to him. Although, I will say, a lot of people, again, are weighing in and casting doubt on all of his findings. And he even he admits, he says, new ideas tend to get an icy reception, and it would be poor research who couldn't defend a new idea if it's any good at all, and he claims he can back it up. And see, that's the thing, though. I mean, I, th- there's so many that I read or that I, I didn't read, but, you know, came across as I was, you know, researching and everything else that said, oh, I can prove it, I can prove it. But then any time they said that, they couldn't prove it. There was no definitive proof. Everything they could prove couldn't necessarily be disproved, but once again, can't be proved. And that's where we run into with almost this entire thing. There's no way to honestly prove it, but no way to completely disprove it either. So that's what I kept running into. I kept, every time I would look at one of these historians, they would stack up their proof and it, I'm, I'm, I'm not a historian. I'm not certainly not a scholarly historian. I've read a lot of history, and I know a lot. I know a lot about history, but I wouldn't consider myself a research historian. Yeah. And there, you know, I looked into their text and what they were presenting as their evidence, and every time I'm like, "Well, that sounds good. That looks good. Way better than this holy blood, holy grail nonsense that we read." Remember? Oh yeah, that was beautiful. That was. That was wonderful. But that's one of the things that you run into. And like I feel like like Dan Brown, a lot of these are based off something like that Holy Blood, Holy Grail, where Holy Blood, Holy Grail even itself is based off of something that's easily proved like, eh, I don't know if this was real. Yeah, well, let's talk about some of the some of the things I don't think people know about the story of Arthur. There's some weird twist and there's some things that haven't made i'll just say pop culture or pop literature that are pretty bizarre about the tale of arthur and the characters around him what there's nothing weird about it it's all perfect (laughs) i i think just a his birth is weird oh okay it's not his birth that's weird it's the conception Yes, that's true. Yeah, the conception, like the beginning of Arthur is bizarre just on its face. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, the whole... Well, and then there's a, there's a lot of different stories. How it happened is really there. Everyone pretty much agrees. But after he's born is where it starts to get weird. Yeah, so here's how the beginning of Arthur takes place. And I was going to read it from the Smithsonian Magazine because I think they put it well. This is supposedly written in 1136. This is part of the History of the Kings of Britain. There was a 6th century king, they claim fictitious, but I don't know, 6th century king named Uther Pendragon, and he sleeps with this gal named Gerna. It's Y-G-E-R-N-A, which was the wife of a local duke at her castle in Tintagel. And we'll get to this castle in a moment because it's, there's still a lot of going on there. Mm-hmm. But he, he does this after the magician Merlin turns Pendragon into a likeness of her husband. Yes. So what the heck? And that's, and that's when 
Arthur is conceived. That's when Arthur is conceived. Well, and then it gets worse than that because the problem is too is what the, her husband's killed. Yes, while this is happening. Right, which is reminiscent of the biblical story of King David, who has his eye on Bathsheba. Mm-hmm. Now, he doesn't get turned into the likeness of her husband, but he does have an affair with her. At the time, he's putting him in harm's way in battle and basically getting him murdered. Yeah. So there's and, a little bit of uh, there's a little bit of crossover there. Yeah, and then her husband gets murdered, and then. Which basically there's a war that he's, you know, Uther's declared war on his his part of the, the country because he wants his wife. And then after the husband dies, he marries her. Yeah, and you, that's not in the cartoon version. That's not in the Sword in the Stone. No. Well, in the Sword in the Stone, it's interesting, the Sword in the Stone, that I you know, I never remember them ever saying anything about his parentage. They call him, they call him Arthur... But they never, I don't remember them ever saying who his actual parentage was. I don't, I'd have to go back and watch. It's been years since I've seen that. But I don't yeah. remember that. I just remember him being a kid. Yeah. Because he's supposed to be like in the, in a lot of the stories that I read, it's much like that. At least once you start getting into the Sword in the Stone. But I don't think the Sword in the Stone even came up until like the 1930s. That was T.H. White. Yes. That came up with the, the whole idea of the Sword in the Stone. Before that, I mean, it was the Lady of the Lake, and then later ones actually combined the two. That it was two swords. There was Excalibur and Caladron. Caladron was the the other name, and the sword that came out of the stone was Caladron, and the one that he used that was Excalibur was the one he got from the Lady of the Lake. So it got weird. And then later, if you get even more stories, there's like two other swords and a spear. So there's some other stories, but yeah, he came, he married her. And then there's a whole nother thing where that comes up later is his mother from her first husband before he died. She'd had a daughter that comes up later named uh, Morgan Morgan, or Morgana. I think that's Morgan Morgana. I've seen it both. Yeah. Yeah. So he had a sister. Yes. A half sister. Right. And then there's also the whole sort of love triangle between Guinevere who apparently slept with everybody yeah and the, the the love triangle with Guinevere happens all the way back to the end but uh, the very the the with Jeffrey Monmouth yes but in that one it's not with Lancelot it's it's a whole nother thing which gets weird too if you understand if you the the yeah that gets weird <laughs> Well, there, yeah, that's the whole thing. Arthur, I think over time, rubbing out all the rough edges of it and, and coming into what we know as this benevolent, uh, mythical sort of a, a role model, as you say, for warriors and for leaders mm-hmm. and you know, all these things, he's got kind of a sordid past. Yes. All the way back to... Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's just look it up. That's all I can say. Oh, yeah. yeah, look yeah, it look up. Look it up because it's it's very weird. And then he wasn't as chivalrous as everybody as we're led to believe. Yeah. Let's just say because you know we there's love songs about Guinevere and the and you know like you said it was the Lady of the Lake mm-hmm. and 
we're, it's seen as this very romantic lo- sort of lovelorn a lot of people get see it as very uh it's like it's like one of the ultimate love stories and it's actually kind of weird yeah because it's not i mean it's not because i mean really in every single in every version guinevere is an adulteress oh big time in every version all the way back to jeffrey monmouth every version she's an adulteress not only was Um, she an adulteress she was a seductress as well mm mm-hmm In my opinion, as I'm reading through that and I'm looking at, I'll just say, the reality of the situation there, she was playing all her cards with whoever she could. And I can't blame her because she's looking for survival, safety, security, and everything. But it was whoever happened to be there at the moment and and had power and could provide her with money, safety, and whatever she was was hoping for. Yeah. Which is very true because I mean it's one in every version, um, she she is an adulteress, but pretty much like in the original versions before Lancelot and the whole love triangle weird thing comes into play, which isn't until I think the fifteen or sixteen hundreds when that finally comes into play, but it's a later edition. Until that, it, it's Arthur's out of town and it's his nephew who takes the the crown and takes the throne and takes Guinevere. And what do you? Th- what's your take on Merlin? Merlin almost needs his own episode because he's fascinating. Like the st- just a little bit I learned just from working on King Arthur and the- just having him as a side character, fascinating. He is fascinating, but I have to believe that again, if Arthur was a real person or he's a concoction of several real people that they've rolled into this mythological figure. And that's the debate, right? Is mm-hmm. he real or is he just this sort of characterization of some great man all rolled into one? Yeah. Do you think there's anything behind the fact that Merlin was real? Was he an advisor? Was uh, that they later gave you know power to this guy? Was he, a, I don't know, like a Celtic druid type guy who maybe freaks some people out with some magic? And so the do you do you have any thoughts on whether Merlin was real or not? I think, I mean, I'll be honest, out of the two of them, I think Merlin's more likely to be real than, than Arthur. If they, I know it sounds weird, but I think he's also another one, though, but I think he is a, 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 a mix of multiple multiple characters. Like, there's multiple people in history that he was bo- he was all of them. That they took one, there's a, one character, and I didn't go deep into the Merlin because we were looking at King Arthur, but there was one character they talked about who saw like his whole family pretty much get wiped out and became like a lunatic and ran out in the woods and whatever they think is part of his. And then there's some advisor that pops up occasionally with different Kings around that time that had a name, not necessarily Merlin, but something close to that they think is the real Merlin. He was just a very good advisor that, you know, was right a lot. Yeah. He was like a wise man. Yeah. A wise man. So, and he pops up in multiple places. Yeah, not a wise guy, a wise yeah, man. Yeah, a wise man. <laughs> but not one of the wise men. Well, he could have been. Who knows? I mean, Maybe. Who knows? I do know that, so we're talking about, for a second, this Tintagel. I believe that's how you say it. It's T-I-N-T-A-G-E-L, Tintagel. And this is where the, the castle supposedly, uh, Arthur's castle is supposedly at. Where he's conceived. And I've actually been to it. 
it's very beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's unbelievably gorgeous. And then there's a place on the other side. So it's in this kind of cove and it is um, joined by this bridge, which wasn't there, I don't think, at the time. I think this has been an added thing. But there's Merlin's, what's, what's known as Merlin's Cave. And you go into Merlin's Cave. Now, it has become sort of a, a King Arthur, sort of a theme park type of thing. So it's, it's yeah. very much like Loch Ness, where it's, they sell all kind of, you know, knick-knacky and schmaltzy swords and King Arthur books and hats and t-shirts. However, if you get away from that and you look at the history of this castle and you look at where it was and why it was there, there is some validity to the fact that this may have been, if he was real and Merlin was real, the whole setup of it, where it is located and the history of it, some of it seems to fit. Yeah, there's a lot. Now, he's one of those ones that I think, you know, if any of it, he would be real. But, I mean, I don't think he was out there, you know, stopping time and doing this other things that they pop up and then turning, you know, Arthur, or not Arthur, Uther Pendragon into somebody who he's not, you know, so that he can sleep with some woman. No, I think that was a that was an excuse just in case she got caught. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Merlin cast a spell on me and I, I didn't know what I was doing. No, he knew exactly what he was doing. She didn't know, but yeah. Right. And what's your take on the Excalibur, which had another name? I'm trying to find it. Um, yeah, I know. I mentioned it. It was Cal. Uh, I, I had it right in front of me a minute ago. Um, Caladrin. Oh, yeah. Caliburn. Caliburn. There we go. Yeah. So Caliburn, like I said, I think I think there's two. I think, I mean, depending on the stories, and like I said, if you actually go through some of the stories, there's like three or, there's two other swords, I think, um, besides Caliburn and Excalibur, and um, a spear and a dagger. But um, I think Caliburn and and Excalibur are two different ones, and there's one story that I was reading that where Caliburn broke, and that was the one he pulled from the stone, was Caliburn. It broke, and then he got Excalibur from the Lady in the Lake to replace Caliburn. See, and I did see, uh, I think it was a movie or something that referenced that. It's, it's a very odd little fact that most people, you would not know. No. That, I'm trying to remember what movie it was, but there was a movie where Arthur's sword, the one he pulls out of the stone, breaks. And everyone's like, oh, no, he's not the king. And then he gets gifted Excalibur. Yeah, I think that might be the movie Excalibur. It wasn't a great movie. Maybe but. it was. Maybe it was. So, again, my just my opinion. I believe with any great warrior, uh, and again, let's go to the Knights Templar. They all had super skills the, the the warrior side of them had amazing skills they all had great shields and swords and and that was part of their might and part of their lore and you go to any mythical or even historical figure during this time their sword was it was kind of like a wild wild west gunslinger's gun right yeah they were known for that weapon and so if Arthur is being pieced together in this mythology, they have to give him something that is 
sort of magical sort of gives him his uh, not so much power but he's known for this weapon because it's the weapon above all weapons and so i think again they started with one and it, it, it as time went on it didn't quite meet the muster of what they needed so then they added a little bit more and a little bit more until the pieces fit yeah and what a great name excalibur i mean come on that's a great name no oh, it is i mean it's a great name but I mean, there's a few things like that you find in the story. Like the one thing, you know, I think we mentioned before we started recording was his child, Mordred, who was also in some stories his nephew, some stories his son, and then in other stories, both. Because in some stories, because he doesn't know who his parents are until later, um, he sleeps with Morgan or Morgana, who is his sister. Yeah, it was Morgana. Yeah, who is his half-sister. I saw it as both Morgan, Morgan Le Fay, Morgana. I saw it a couple different ones. Right. But um, that he sleeps with her, and they have a child, Mordred, who is both his cousin, his uncle, or sorry, his nephew and his son. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of crazy uh, <laughs> relatives in there. Yeah, and then they never mention in every story I've ever seen. I've never seen one until I started researching this that Arthur dies. Except for an Excalibur, because he has the lake at the very end of the movie. I remember the scene where he has, I can't remember which one it is, one of the knights take his sword because he died and said, take Excalibur and give it back. So he throws it in the lake and you see him like toss the sword and suddenly the hand pops out and catches it. Right. So, yes, that's an interesting little piece you brought up there because I've seen more that he, he didn't die that he he never died in fact there's medieval arthurian romances these songs that were sung at the time that sang that he never died that he was actually asleep and that he was asleep on avalon yeah that they took him to avalon to fix him and there he's sleeping while he heals and he will return yeah one day save us one day his people will call him forth again it says in some versions all the king's men and all the king's horses are also slumbering with him well, that's good, because we need him now. Come save us. Please, wake up. Yes, wake up, because the rest of the world needs to wake up, too. Now, there are, I did read a couple where it did say that he did die, that they took him to Avalon, and that he would be resurrected. Yes. So I think it just depends on who you're reading as to how that unfolds. Yeah. And there's other things. I mean, we skipped over because I mean, we we talked about Arthur. We didn't talk about like much about like I said, Merlin. I think would be a fun one to go down someday, because um, like it explains the the Stonehenge. Yes. Well, I think we're gonna have to do Merlin on his own. Yeah, because he yeah his whole idea with Stonehenge, Uther Pendragon. Who I don't think Uther's enough. I think we're gonna mention we mentioned him in King Arthur. He'd be mentioned in Merlin. He's not enough on his own. But I mean. It's just fascinating, some of the stuff with Merlin and the stuff that he did with Uther and Arthur. And also that the round table table wasn't added till like this, well, like 13 or 1400s. There was no round table. Most historians do not believe there was a round table. No. Most, most historians don't even believe that there were the knights, like, like even Lancelot wasn't real. Yeah. That th- those he- were made up side characters to this sort of combination mythical figure of Arthur. 
Yeah, there's a few in that that are in the original stories. Uh, K is in the original story. Uh, Bedivere, I think, is in the original story. There's a few other ones that are in the original story. But other than that, a lot of the other ones aren't added till later. Right. You know. Well, I did find this article. Real, I wanted to go through this real quick. I thought it was interesting because apparently, I didn't know this, but Arthur is sort of connected to QAnon, which I would have never guessed in a million years. No, I wouldn't either. But according to the the Daily Beast, there is the this castle in the English West Country which has long been home to ancient legends and new age mysticism. Now it harbors a darker, dangerous set of beliefs. This is according to them. This is uh, January 8th, 2021. What it is, there's this castle that is supposedly, it's believed to be at one point inhabited by or possibly the castle of, Ki of King Arthur. And these people who have bought it, they have set it up as the hotspot, prime spot in England for QAnon followers. Now, this is 2021, so I don't know what they're doing now because QAnon hasn't been a thing or posted or done anything for two years now or more. Yeah. And I, I'm just going to tell you, when I had never heard of Q, the first time I heard of Q was when I was in Scotland. And I was way out in no man's land and I was staying at this Airbnb, and there was a guy living next to it in a in a trailer, and he happened to be co-owner of this this house that was being rented out to us because it had been their parents' house. And he came over one night and brought some Scottish whiskey, and we were hanging out and talking. And he asked me if I had ever heard of Q, and I thought he was talking about at the time Q magazine, which was a thing. Yeah, and he said no, and he explained who Q was, and it was all you know, all about Donald Trump and all about the White Hats. All, we know all about Q. Oh yeah, I had never heard of it. I was clueless. And he said, when you get back to the states, you have to look this up. And he kind of told me a little bit about it. That was the first time I ever heard about it, and I didn't realize that Q, the the Q movement or the Q believers or the Q followers, whatever, are huge in England. And Scotland. I had no idea. Yeah, it's crazy. But apparently this is a gathering place for them. And in the lobby, they have this, or they did, according to this article in 2021, a huge picture of Donald and Melania Trump and a bunch of Q pamphlets. And they would host meetings and they would have... <laughs> Uh, gatherings and people would come from all over England to come stay at this hotel and discuss Q posts or wh whatever they were doing. Hmm. If you listen to our episode on Q, you know my thoughts on all of that. But according to them, they believe that part of Q, that Arthur could be, th this could be the time that Arthur is called back, just like you were saying. I mean, he could. Have, I'm not sure I'd want to because of that, but I mean, it's one of those things. Because I mean, we 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 basically talked about before how, you know, Q was a thing that started off good and then I think was taken over at some point. Yes, but it's you know, it's definitely interesting that it would be a place like that that would have it all. Well, yeah. according to them, according to this article, there was a a moment in 
in the Q lore where they believed that Robert Kennedy Jr., the guy who died in the airplane crash, yep. was not dead and that he was coming back and that he may have been the modern inhabitant of King Arthur because of the whole Camelot thing that we've talked about that the Kennedys were associated with. Yeah. That there was actually some sort of spiritual connection and that Arthur was real that he's on Avalon, but actually that's transferred over to the Kennedys and Robert Kennedy Jr., who died, was actually Arthur. It, it all gets kind of convoluted. But I was, shocked, always... to, I was shocked to see that this, this all kind of tied together. Yeah, doesn't it always get a little convoluted, though? <laughs> Sadly, it does. Sadly, it does. It does. Here's another one. This is another one. The Return of the Hidden Hero. Followers of QAnon recently gathered in Dallas's Dealey Plaza for what was billed to be an appearance by John F. Kennedy Jr. A similar gathering on July 4th, 2019 proved fruitless. And then it goes on about this hero, God, king, return, this expectation of return. And then they roll it right into... Arthur. It says Arthur's 19th century resurrection manifestation was cultural, uh, literary, and historical, especially in popular history. Morris calls it a kind of necromancy, a magical revival of the dead, a metaphor made almost flesh, and that the myth needed to be embodied. And so they, according to this, again, they transferred it over to kennedy based on the fact that that period of america was deemed camelot yeah and that's, but i mean the thing is too is i mean like we talked about in kennedy the only person who said that was jackie yes she made it she made the whole thing up yeah she just pulled it out of her a yeah because it was good publicity if anything jackie kennedy is a great marketing and publicist yeah, because remember, wasn't it? Didn't she say that that John F. Kennedy would talk to her every night about this being Camelot or something, and the whole thing yeah. was made up? Yeah, it was all made up. So, and then the press ran with it because it's that's a good story. It is. Do I and think the press loves a good story, whether it's true or not? Well, yeah, and the press was way different back then. They covered up for a lot of things, and they wanted to d really distract even more than now. Yeah, but. I don't know. I think, I mean, obviously, I don't believe that if Arthur was real, that he's on some island in a coma or under Merlin's spell or whatever, waiting to be called back. I, there's no way. I'm not buying that. No. No. Do I believe that King Arthur was real? I, I, so I'm very torn on this. I want him to be real. I really do. Because I love everything around what we know, the sort of the modern interpretation of King Arthur, the Knights of the Round Table, even the love story and the Lady of the Lake and the Excalibur. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's, it a, it's a great story. Problem is, I think Arthur could have been, whether he was a king or not, I don't know. I think it makes more sense that he was a really really good general who kind of flew under the radar didn't get a lot of press and so they 
took hit whoever that person was, and that's under debate. They took that person and made that person into this sort of mythological figure. And Arthur was born out of that. Yeah. That's just kind of how everything points. It is. I'm glad they did. I think it's a fantastic tale. But uh, when it comes right down to it, I'm a realist and I look at what's in front of me and I could not come to the conclusion that there was anything solid that points to the fact that this was a real person. Yeah. And that's the thing, like you said, it's, there's nothing solid that says it was, but you know, like we said, there's nothing solid, solid that said he wasn't, but I mean, I, I would say, say the this. evidence towards him being real is much more suspect than the evidence towards him not being real. Yeah. Like it was a lot more solid that he is a made up character based on several other people that they just kind of brought together and created this superhuman type person. Yeah. I mean, it's like the same argument I can come up with for Krampus. Right. I mean, there's nothing that proves that Krampus is real, but you can't prove to me that he's not. And I mean, I keep an open mind. And if somebody comes up with something, for instance, there's some castle where they have dug up pieces of the original castle and there's Celtic writing on there and so forth. And Mm -hmm. one of them is like barely kind of sort of similar to Arthur. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, that's him. That, that, this is it. This is his castle that mentioned it. But then you get the people who come in and who know the language of that day, and they're like, no, that's not what it says at all. It just That's how it's sort of spelled out. If you're reading it in English, it looks like that, but that's not what that says. Yeah, and, and that's the hard part because Gaelic, you know, that old you know, Welsh and Gaelic languages, they use the, the, the alphabet that we see now, but they used it completely different. Completely it different. looks like our letters in our alphabet, but it's not. Right. So this is how I logically think. If Arthur was real and he was king, he would have some sort of record because all kings had records. Now, I do understand things got stolen and things got burned when other kings and battles took place. But I would think there would be some remnants left. Of a guy who was so great. There would be more than just a couple of authors years and years and years later who kind of dig him up. I would think it would be much bigger than that. Yes. That's just my, those are my thoughts. I mean, again, I keep an open mind. If something comes up that is super factual and they're like, yep, we found him, then great. I'm all in. Yeah, and it's one of those things which I do understand things can get lost to history. It's like one of the things, um, you know, we talked about King Tut at one time and everything like that where King Tut's lost. Right. He got lost to history for years and they found like writings that said, oh my gosh, here's this king that we never knew about because the kings after him erased him from history. That is possible. But the thing is, is once you're starting into the times of Arthur and everything like that, you still had other tribes around that if he was whooping their ass so bad, you think there would be some documentation from either the Saxons or the Romans, whichever one he was whooping. But, I mean, in one of the things, they talk about how he actually conquers Gaul, which is actually France, um, Iceland, Norway, I mean, pretty much all of Europe. (laughs) 
Exactly. And there would be some record somewhere by somebody else, if not by him, of, hey, this guy came in and, like you said, whooped our ass. Yeah. And I, I think if he did exist, I don't think it's, I don't think he was everything they say he was. There's a oh. lot of things attributed to him that never really happened that he didn't do or were done by other people. I think he's a conglomeration of about five or six people. Yes. Yes. And I want it to be true. I, I love do. the I love the story and I love the mythology of it, but unfortunately, I have to give it a thumbs down. It's, Arthur's not a true person, and neither is the rest of the story. No, but we are going to look at Merlin because there is some there are some interesting things about Merlin, and I think you're right. Merlin may actually have been the act, maybe the one true character in this whole thing. Yeah. So, we would love to hear your opinion on this. Yes. Did we miss something? Do you have something that we need to know that would either change our mind or are you disagreeing, agreeing? Email us down the RH at protonmail.com. I would love to hear input on this episode. Oh, yeah. And I mean, we glossed over a couple things really a lot where there's a lot more information that we kind of glossed over really quickly. So, I mean, really do your own research into some of this. Look into, you know, the, the way he died in the battle with Mordred, who was either his nephew or his son or both. I mean, you know, there's so many other things in this story that are just fascinating um, that I never knew of. And I always thought we're part of history. And then to realize what stories really are and what ones really may not have anything to do with actual history. Yeah, well, Mordred was a traitor. Yes. And if something new comes to light, we'll jump into this topic again. Oh, yeah. And it's one thing I do have to say, if Mordred wasn't, I mean, it, either way, I mean, he started stepmom porn, apparently. So, I mean, <laughs> if you, I mean. No, you did not do that. I had to. Oh, my. I mean, if if the part is that he is Arthur's kid, I mean, he does marry Guinevere at the end. Yes, he does. Well, like, I mean, Guinevere was an opportunist. That's, <laughs> that's just how that went. She must have been very skilled, too. That's all I can say. You must have. So, Anyway, you've got the midweek edition coming up. I do. I do. And I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I got to think. I think I know which one I'm going to do. And it's going to be another. I'm going to do another historical one because I'm kind of having fun with this history stuff. So, Great. Well, everybody, hope you have a fantastic week. And we'll be back uh, next Sunday together for another edition of Down the Rabbit Hole. In the meantime, I'm Big D. I'm Brandon. We're out of here. See you later.